0: This is OSHIP, the show where experts and leaders look back at their biggest moments of failure just so you can avoid making them. And there is no one better to squeeze the naked truth out of our charismatic guests than your host, Chameleon Collective Founding Partner, Freddie Laker. Hey everyone and welcome to this week's o Ship. For anyone that's out there that's either leading or aspires to lead a software firm, whether you work in sales, marketing, technology, or product development, then this should be a very, very interesting episode for you. Today, we're actually joined by Todd Olson, who's the CEO and founder of Pendo. Pendo provides software designed to help build better software products. It's a tool that enables product managers to do things like get better feedback, look at product usage analytics, provide in-app guides, and collaborate more closely with software's actual users to generate the products they want to use. It's working really well because today they've got more than 3,000 customers and roughly about 900 employees. Before Pendo, Todd was the VP of product at CA Technologies. He was the chief scientist at Borland Software and in addition to co-founding two other firms, Sixth Sense and Cerebellum. Todd has always been neck deep in software development. And that's why I think his passion for helping digital teams to build great products led him to write his first book called The Product-Led Organization, drive growth by putting product at the center of your customer experience. Todd has personally experienced the highs and lows of running fast growth technology firms, but he's also now been exposed to thousands of companies building their own software. So I imagine what he's learned. And that's why I think he's the perfect person to help us try and understand some of the highs and lows of building great product companies. And with that, here we go with this week's o <music> Oh, shit. Todd, welcome to ship. how are you? I'm doing well, thanks for having me. I hope I did your very cool background justice. I didn't want to steal too much of your Thunder, because I know we're going to get a lot into a lot of the cool things you've been able to do throughout your career.
1: I think that was wonderful.
0: Uh, I'll take it. I'll be your hype man, anytime. (laughs) Let's start with why you started Penda.
1: Yeah, look, I mean, the inspiration came from, from pain, pain I experienced Mm -hmm. firsthand. As you said, I ran a product at a SaaS company before this and in that role, B2B SaaS product, lots of features and capabilities serving kind of a wide variety of customers, both large and small. And I was kind of struggling to understand, you know, how people were using the product, where to invest in. We all have limited resources and capabilities with respect to our developers. I, I haven't met a single company and says, oh, we have a surplus of software developers and we, you know, <laughs> we, just, we can build everything we want. No, you have to actually choose very deliberately where you're going to invest. And hopefully if you do a good job. As you deliver those software features, people adopt them. They get value out of them. And they continue to drive expansion, but, but all too often we build things and we ship things. They don't get adopted to the level in which we desire. And my last job, you know, I shipped a handful of things and it's interesting. You ship these things and like the salespeople would come back or people would call, oh, this is amazing. Like you did it's like such a great job. And then you finally get data and it's like, uh. Oh, ship, I guess, you know, uh, (laughs) people are not using it to the level uh, that we're desiring it. I think that pain is really, was kind of the inspiration for starting Pendo.
0: Yeah. full disclosure, I'm building a software product as another self-startup that I'm working on. So the things you're talking about is things that I've been immersing myself in, in particular the last couple of years from, you know, trying to prioritize features. And you don't, you know, to your point, you don't have an unlimited amount of energy But there's this kind of important role that you've filled many times of being a product manager. And I think that role is going to get come up a lot today. And without being kind of overly pedantic, I think there could be people that are in our audience who don't understand what the role of a product manager is. So just in the sense of table setting, in your own words, can you describe what the role of a product manager is just to make sure everyone listening today or watching today understands a software product manager specifically?
1: Yeah, yeah. Software or digital product manager. Is yeah. All, yeah our digital
0: all. product manager. Yeah. Look, product manager is an interesting
1: role. It's a, essentially a member of the overall software development team that's responsible for kind of being the liaison between the customer and the development team to make sure that we're building and shipping things that deliver customer value. And you'll see a lot of Words or expressions, or even phrases that people say, like in, I think Scrum as a methodology, which is a very popular Agile methodology, they'll refer to the product owner, which is a slight derivation of product manager, as the on site customer, essentially. Mm-hmm. So, like, that is like the role of that. You also hear folks like Ben Horowitz of the famous Andreessen Horowitz that will use terms like CEO of the product. Mm-hmm. But this person is responsible for synthesizing lots of data points, internal data points, external data points from customers and formulating a strategy and then set of like backlog items and features, capabilities, mm-hmm. directions that we then the development team executes.
0: So it's like they're the voice of the customer or the coordinator there. In your opinion, what are the most important qualities that a product manager should have?
1: I think... You want someone who is curious, someone who has empathy and is good at listening. Like a great product manager isn't just asking a question and and hearing that first answer. They're trying to dig to those second questions, third questions. Like there's this concept or technique we use called five whys. You want someone comfortable getting to that fifth why because you want to get to root cause. Like what we try to do in product is we try to strip things back from, okay, someone's asking for X, Y, or Z. I wanna back into what's the why? What's the pain I'm trying to solve? Because maybe what they're asking for isn't actually what they need. Maybe the right solution is a slightly different angle or lens on it, but you need to understand root cause, you need to understand why. So that's like the first piece. The other piece I will add as well is, product managers need to work very well cross-functionally. It's a role of influence, not of control. Like PM, you're not gonna have a lot of direct reports ever. It's unnatural to have a lot of direct reports can influence the entire business so your job is to figure out how to build relationships and drive influence actually i think it's the fun part of the job too driving influence those are two characteristics i think a lot about when i think about a uh, strong product managers
0: one of the things that stands out to me as i'm listening to you share your thoughts on these qualities is it can't help but make me think of like classic leadership traits and so one of the things I think is also interesting about you, and I hope it's okay to say, is like you've been involved in a lot of businesses, but I think Pendo is the biggest, like you're now a CEO of a pretty large organization with that many employees and that many customers. I think you're in quite a few countries now as well, aren't you?
1: Yeah, four or five countries now. Yeah, so yeah, nine yeah, offices globally. It's, so- it's an
0: international business, a lot of folks. So I'm interested to see if I ask you what you think the most important qualities in a leader are what parallels that there may be from when you think about a leader as a product manager. You know what I mean? Is there a crossover as you now reflect on leadership?
1: I think so. Yeah. You know, cause I think one of the frustrations you may have as a product manager is because you don't have a large span of control. You're like, how do I get things yeah. done? You get frustrated. Like you feel like you can't get things done because you don't quote unquote control it. So you have to learn other techniques. I was struggling with a relationship earlier in my career with like the head of support, you know, like this person's not like me <laughs> and I was not letting <laughs> their support. And I started learning different techniques about, okay, I need to take this person out to dinner and understand like, what is their world like? What is their pain point? Like how do I step a day in this person's shoes, gain a little more empathy and then try to find a way to align what I'm working on to how it helps this person okay. be more effective in their role. And I think building some of those softer skills, like look, kind of, Came out of college, you know, I'm kind of a type A person. I think, uh, you know, plenty of people, I mean, candidly like to run over people and accomplishing things. And that's a technique. And sometimes being a little more aggressive may be the right technique for the situation. But I found like building relationships, being collaborative, like that sort of leading
0: through influence is ultimately more effective. 100%. I've seen a lot of really smart people who aren't nearly as effective as the people that get all the other smart people around them to run in the same direction. You touched a second ago about some of the soft skills that maybe are things that you picked up through being a product manager. Let's assume that make some assumptions that product management is a little bit like building a company. I'd be interested to see like what principles you may have taken from product management and applied effectively to being an entrepreneur. If that makes sense, I'd love to dive into that a little bit more.
1: One of the most important, like, I think goals for an early startup is the same as for a product at a larger company is this concept of product market fit. And I think honestly, what separates most successful businesses and not is this ability to get fit and not rushing it. I find that, you know, every time I've made huge errors or mistakes in my life, I've tried to like get around product market fit or, or like go past it, or just sort of like pretend I had it when I didn't actually do it. I think it's being very deliberate, very iterative and very focused on getting fit, which separates successful startups and entrepreneurs and not. Even to this day at our size and scale, we, our success is driven for the fact that we have really good product market fit. And it was formed early, years ago. And we're still leveraging that same success. It doesn't mean that we can just rest on that and nothing else occurs. Of course, there's much more to it. And now we have other challenges, scaling the market, things like that. But like, wow, the foundation of our business is strong fit. And you can lose it if you're not really careful and hyper-focused on it. But I, I think that as a product manager, it translates so well to entrepreneurship. And it doesn't matter what you're selling, what business you have, there has to be some concept of fit.
0: So. Right. This quote we've said in a prior episode of our ship that I remember once working on something where I, was, I loved it and to your point, it's like the sales guys writing up saying, yeah, it's great, but you can't run a business on high fives was a quote that I was stuck in my head. And it was like this, you know, features really neat or really cool or really innovative, but unless it's really useful and it really nails that fit, then like you're screwed in the long run. Yeah. Otherwise, there's no stickiness to it. It's just a novelty. Earlier in when I interviewed interview in the show, I talked a little bit about your book. And in the book, like the core principles, basically you argue that putting your product at the center of the customer experience effectively drives growth. I'd love to hear what are some of the top tips that you basically feel drive a product-centric customer experience that drive success effectively.
1: Yeah, look, one of the ways I think about this concept of being product-led is like within any of our companies, we have a lot of activities that are performed by humans that are very high volume and very low value. So I think about how do we create a product-led experience? It's one, obviously more efficient for the business, but it's also actually a better experience and it's meeting the customers where they are. So for example, I'm using a product and I have to talk to a human being to learn how to use it, to learn how to use it the first time. Like that's not a great experience. And in particular, if I have to like schedule a time with that human being, if it's maybe not when I want to use this product, you know, we live in a world now where Everything is more asynchronous than it used to be. I sometimes do things at, you know, 8 PM on a Friday night after I put my kids to bed, or sometimes I'm doing things early in the morning when I get up, or I'm like in the airport, I'm trying to do something. I'm trying to do it at a plane. I want products that meet me where I am mm-hmm. and great products do. They're there when I need it. And there's an experience that's built around what's best for me as the mm-hmm. customer and the user. And I think that's a big piece of it. I think the other thing I'll just say as a more tactical like example is having a very metrics-driven and very experiment-driven culture. So like all too often, and that more than anything else, if you're trying to become product-led is how does your organization treat and celebrate experiments? And when I say celebrate, what I mean is some are going to fail, especially larger organizations. Like people are absolutely petrified of failure. But if you're not failing, you're not trying hard enough. Mm. And I think great product-led organizations are going to run, I don't know, a set of experiments within a certain time frame. Some are going to work, and some aren't. And, and yeah, like you'll see me say in a meeting, like, "Wow, all of these worked." You know, what are we missing? <laughs> what are we not? <laughs> Seems, um, I'd like, be highly
0: like, suspicious if I got yeah, all. I know yeah, yeah. like,
1: it's not good. It scares me. <laughs> Very rarely, like you know, we do like OKRs, you know, all these goal setting things.
0: Never in company
1: history have we hit all three, or yeah. all four, whatever the number is. We've never hit all of them, and I try to remind the company that like failing at one it's okay like yeah. at least we tried
0: I you think, know, it, I think like a cool premise like, of your platform where it's like look we want you to go out there and do as much stuff as you can and then how do you manage all the feedback and the information and everything else that comes back to you so that you can make sense of all that testing and that interaction that is happening with a the product there's some things i think because of how much experience you have is just like innately something you've learned or experienced through your vast experience. I'd be intrigued to hear if there's any data or things that you guys have learned. You're now enabling all these other things, people to do this thing that you did for yourself. Like, what have you learned? Has there been anything that's kind of surprised you when you've seen data at scale? I'm assuming, well, that's anonymized, so there's no privacy issues or things like that, you know?
1: Yeah, look, I I think there is a lot of things that we've learned. A lot of the more interesting learnings is is how many traditional businesses are leveraging product-led techniques to drive a better experience for their users. I'm thinking like banks or insurance companies, large organizations. We have some companies that we're seeing growth in, you know, essentially digital applications for like their employees, you know, and they're thinking about the employee experience. And one of the things that's interesting is that people's employee experience, and you can use maybe EMPS as a proxy for like sentiment of employees, is actually being affected by the software they're using. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing more and more companies leverage, say, Pendo on internal applications Mm -hmm. to try to drive a better employee experience, which is something that we hadn't really anticipated when we started the company. We were very focused on customer experiences. That to me is one of the more interesting sort of changes or trends that's relatively new.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the biggest trends I'm seeing right now that I think is worth watching, putting my marketing guy hat on here for a mm-hmm. moment. I think if you look at the last couple of years, especially with digital products, people were in e-commerce as well, which I think is a digital product in its own right. We've seen our clients and the brands that we've led or worked with. People have invested a lot in acquisition. They're driving tons and tons of people to these apps, e-commerce sites. The media costs have been going up consistently. For a whole bunch of reasons, I'm not going to get into right now. And I think when we we're recommending strategies to people now for kind of 23 and onward, it's like, look, if you can't control the media costs, you need to focus on two areas. One is retention, and then two is optimization. And that's ultimately it's product optimization, right? It's like, hey, if, you know, if it costs so much to get people to the site, you need to convert more people. You need to have better experiences so you retain them and make your experiences stickier. And I hope that leads to more people taking this side of it more seriously. You know, again, looking at it through the lens of marketing, I think a lot of times it's like set it and forget it or build it once and then we're kind of done kind of thinking, you think about this naturally, but not everyone who may be listening or watching might now do, is that it's like, it's a never ending ongoing optimization. Like nothing's ever really done. I can't even imagine like building something and getting to a place where like, you were like, really, I think we've figured out everything now, like we're done. We don't have to work on it, like that that just doesn't happen.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know I mean, this is this whole mindset where we're often we need to shift people's thinking from this is a project people are working on to this yeah. is a product, products of life cycles. And yeah. one of the phrases I use sometimes when I'm talking with customers is, you know, product, is the new marketing, right? In terms of how you think about acquiring customers? It can be a huge asset. And like one very tactical thing, one of our customers, I was talking to them uh, a while ago and they had a program where within the product, if someone left them positive feedback about the product, they would redirect them to a review site. And it seems like the most basic thing, but in that program basically catapulted them on this review site to being like top 10 app in the world by one program. Doing product- led reviews, very tactical thing, very simple, but it's a great way to augment your marketing programs. And, and one of the things that we spend time with the customers, even ourselves internally is how do we create virality? You know, we're an analytics platform. So when you're sharing charts and graphs, you know, making sure people know where it's coming from. You know, we communicate like we actually just launched our free product. We have an MPS capability. We added branded MPS so People know that Pendo is powering those MPS things. And look, the whole purpose of that is it's virality. It's a good experience. It's a good thing to interact with. We should be saying, hey, this is powered by us. And that's okay. a way to, again, help marketing, you know, acquire more customers and leads. You have to think about the experience and not just think about it like, are customers getting value? That's like a first order problem. Yeah. But how do I leverage this to get more customers and drive growth and run experiments? Like you may have... Three or four candidates for virality, but one may be the best one. So, how are you running experiments and figuring out which ones can actually drive the most virality inside your org?
0: Not to put you on the spot, but when you think about how like organizations are designed now, so when you think about you know, you're talking about putting the product at the center of the customer experience, let's go to a SaaS product company. Chief product officer is you know clearly in the C-suite, reporting straight into CEO. I'm assuming. But, like, are the marketing folks into product or are they on parallel with product, if that makes sense?
1: Yeah. So, I, look, I think this is the amazing world that we live in, you know, yeah. in that, like, no two CPOs or CMOs are the same, even more pronounced, I think, in the marketing. And you're a marketing, you probably know more than I do, but I say you know, every marketing leader has a major and a minor. And depending yeah, on their the major like and minor, you're going to probably give someone something or not give. I mean, right now, we do have a chief product officer and chief marketing officer both report to me. I think our chief product officer owns growth, product-led growth, so she has a VP of growth underneath and that VP has dotted lines to a number of demand gen marketers who work very closely. It's, you know, I think one of the hallmarks of our culture is that for many years, we've really focused on building cross-functional teams and not worrying so much about where people report, worrying more about what is this team's mandate? How are they measured? How are they driving outcomes for the business? And, and independent of where they like roll up, it all sort of connected in, into a single unit and single goal. That right now is how we have the work structure and it works. And I think our chief product officer, chief marketing are very collaborative and they work well together. So that also have a great relationship. So I don't think anyone's upset that one reports one, you know, who owns it. But I think it's definitely a team effort.
0: And I want to jump subjects a little bit. So... At some point, I'm definitely going to ask you for a personal Oship story, but this is not that time. I'm intrigued to know, just given the exposure you have to so many different businesses and you don't have to name any specific company or out anyone, but I'd be intrigued to hear if you have a story or two of kind of when like product management goes wrong, like when people just broke a fundamental rule and you've seen it kind of. Explode in a company's face, if that makes sense. I don't know if this product management goes wrong or it's just like right. business going wrong. But
1: yeah. like, look, I think here, you have no I'll idea you what your customers doing in your product. It leads your company to big risk. So we worked with a very large company who all remain nameless, yeah. but you know had a surprise churn. So a massive customer left them, and the reality is they had all the data to know this customer is going to churn. They weren't measuring it and henceforth, they weren't looking at it. But when you aren't a data-driven culture and you take for granted and you think, I hear this all the time from customers and it's shocking. They'll say, you know what? We talk to our customers all the time. We know what they feel and think. We don't need to measure things. Like they're going to tell us if they're unhappy. Like, that is not scale, folks. And the reality is, you, it's highly risky. You, like, I asked so, someone
0: the other day, they said, We're great. That was a sample size of one. We're golden. I
1: literally <laughs> hear this even to this day. And it's shocking to me. And you can't debate that with that person. Like, really? <laughs> I mean, no, the reality is, you're leading yourself very, very risky. And you, you don't have to do that. You can measure it. Like, there's solutions that exist. That's one of the things where I think product management can go right. I think the second anti pattern, this is an anti pattern. And this is one of my biggest pet peeves in product, if not my biggest pet peeve, is when they become order takers. It's like, customer asks for A, we build A. Customer asks for B. And you up these Frankenstein products. Yeah. I think the art form here isn't just like, oh, customer asks for A, we built A. It's you're synthesizing a lot of feedback. You're getting to root cause. And then you're formulating a, like a hypothesis on, hey, I think this is going to address... Several pieces of feedback. Now, look, every once in a while, yes, you're gonna get some like feature requests. Honestly, it's so small, it takes so little time. Probably just build the thing, and get it out there. Sure. Okay, I'll accept that. But all too often I find people getting into this trap of customer asks for we're gonna build a you'll get me in meetings where I'm like, um, well, did we step back and think about like is mm. that like a practical thing to, to use? Like, is that does that really makes sense?
0: Like, I know they asked for it. But did it make sense? You can also get these really squeaky clients or users that like they're noisy, but they don't represent the whole, and they kind of drag the product team around by the nose, if you know what I mean.
1: Yeah, I I had a product manager come to me and say the customers asked us to do this. Big feature area. I was like, well, that's a big piece of work. There's like whole other solutions in the market that do that. Ours will be probably, if there's 10, ours will be the 11th. It'll be the worst, you know, because we're doing it from scratch. And do they know that we would be charging them like a decent amount of money for this? Well, no. Okay. So a customer tells us they want us to do something because they think they're going to get it for free. Um, that's not good product management. Like we're not going to do that. Now let's understand why they want that. What are they trying to solve? What's the pain? And why aren't these other 10 solutions good solutions? They want to integrate with them better. Maybe that's the like, what's the why? We're always trying to step back and get to why. And sometimes you'll get really good whys. I'm like, oh, yeah, it makes sense to do that. But if you get a really, really crappy why, you know, a customer asked, two customers asked, or what you often see, this is like the beautiful hackery of product Mm -hmm. management, is like people will take the revenue of the two biggest customers that just mentioned it on the call. It's like, oh, this is a $2 million problem. No, no, it's not. No, just two big customers you mentioned it in A call, it's not making yeah. a two million dollar problem. Yeah. A, a lot of times, I like, get this. I like, get spreadsheets with like you know a couple of big customer names. Like, Todd, we got to build this because it's two giant customers. And then I'm like, well, how important is it? You know, being really disciplined on that is something that is relatively
0: hard. Let me flip this on its head. What happens when the biggest voice isn't the customer? But you made this advice for a product manager where it's the founder or the CEO or something like that. These people who are like, they're, they're so resolute in the vision that they're basing all their decisions on the feeling, but it may not be supported by data. How do you, like, it's almost like managing up, if you follow me, like... No,
1: I I, look, look, I, I, first of all, I struggle with this. Yeah. I struggle with this. If I ask, like... Permission to build Pendo the way I wanted to at day one, or did like a million focus groups, I probably would not have built this product. You know, I had a mm-hmm. vision in my head for what people wanted, and we actually went broad pretty fast. And I, I almost ignored some feedback. And lo and behold, guess what? It's of done good. well. And <laughs> people copied us. Like the reality is, it was the right solution, right? So now when I come up with an idea, how hard should I push? So there's a balancing act we have here. I think it depends a lot on the founder. Like I have enough self awareness. You no, know, like I've come up with a lot of ideas after the original idea, and I have not pushed them at the level that I could have, or even want to. I still am kind of pissed off I didn't push it. But a few, like just being honest. But, but I'm listening to our team. We're balancing a lot of things, and I think uh, I'm okay with it. But then every once in a while, like and I'll take a like a very relevant, very current example is like AI. Like. No customers calling me and saying, hey, you know, I think we really need AI in the product, you know, because AI is a technology. Yeah. But it's a potentially disruptive trend that could change, well, many industries, I believe. Some people are likening it to like the next cloud or the next internet, you know, and if you don't have a founder-like person or a very senior leader pushing it, you may not get the change or the pace of change that you need to keep up with this incredible trend. Yeah. And it could really kill a company. And you look at like what happened to Apple when Steve Jobs left, like it obviously did not do well during that period, right? Mm-hmm. But it takes sometimes a founder to come in and say, look, we have to change. Like we have to move swiftly. And that's the problem you get, you get to like 900 people, thousand people, Like, yeah. like how do you change a ship that that big Well, you need someone forceful enough to move it with enough conviction to drive the kind of change of companies, and these are existential trends. Yeah, there's a reason
0: I think is you struggle with, and I can identify this well. It's like first off, you've got some founders who think they're the next Steve Jobs, so they're resolute in their point of view. You know what I mean? but it's hot garbage. And then there's the people <laughs> who are the next jobs who are like, you probably should ignore everyone else's data. There's the product that people don't know they need yet. And that's a huge leap. And those are, you know, I, I hate the expression, but you know, those are kind of unicorn magical moments or whatever. But my advice would be, I think there are times that I work with certain product people or even, and this applies to marketing as well. They're like, look, I believe I should do that. And the other person says, I believe we should do that. And my answer always for them is, Test it, you know, like it doesn't really matter what your opinion is or your opinion, or your opinion is let's just do both and assume that we're going to do both and we'll let the data decide because, you know, if one performs better than the other, it's the ultimate bet ender. You know what I mean? Right. If you have all the data. That's great. Yeah.
1: The more you can run experiments. Yeah. The better, and yeah. Look, I also probably think that to anyone's listening, or right? I mean, general. Like, if you think you're the next Steve Jobs, just assume you're not for a really long time. <laughs> you know, otherwise
0: wrong. <laughs> that is also <laughs> solid advice. I agree. So, uh, while we're thinking about earlier stage founders and uh, some of the lessons we've uh, had there, I think it is the appropriate time that I ask you your O ship story. So, for those of you who may be tuning in to O ship for the first time, one of the things we love to do is get people with incredible backgrounds like Todd on and say, at some moment in your career, was there a time when the wheels came off the bus, the train went off the rails, whatever the expression is, but everything kind of went all wrong and started to blow up in your face a little bit. And then how did you handle that? Sometimes people fail completely and it's about how they changed them afterwards. Sometimes these stories about how things went off the bus, but they fixed it and what they learned from that. And sometimes, frankly, these are none of those things, but maybe they were not very funny when they happened to them at the moment, but are really funny many years later. I'm open to any O ship store, but I love having a little bit of human truth because I think it helps people who maybe look at someone with your background Todd and go, you know what? I want to be the next Pendo, or I want to take inspiration from you. And they need to know that the path is not a straight line and that it wasn't easy and that it's okay if they get a little egg on their face too. Oh, well, that, sir, you have the floor. <laughs> yeah, the problem is I have too many of these options. But, uh, <laughs> for uh, I don't even charge for this therapy session, by the way. Yeah,
1: no, like look, I, I think both of them are basically the same root cause. I didn't realize yeah, that. If you got two, I mean, go for it. I'm down. Most, most, yeah, but look, like you mentioned this is my third startup, and this is the most successful. I think everyone's very transparent on that. It's very obvious. But, you know, the first two, did of course, did not end the way I wanted. Both are cautionary tales. Look, I'll say that the second one, was one where, boy, I thought I knew better. And I had, you know, obviously experience at that point. And, but we set ourselves up for failure day one, day one. Like we, we conceived of a problem. You know, it was also born of my experience. And we raised capital on this premise that we're going to ship software like super fast. I think it was like a six month timeframe, eight month timeframe. And then we're immediately going to start hiring salespeople and start selling it. Which is again, this whole like, we basically hired salespeople before we had product market fit. Actually, before we even tried to get product market fit, okay. and like that's basically taking cash outside and like lighting it on fire. Um, I did that one.
0: That was uh, not my brightest moment,
1: and <laughs> it, it was a terrible experience. You know, and it is also a similar experience where, as a very technical person, and I was and I was at that point, yeah, writing a ton of code, building the team. I mean, I was pulling all nighters probably multiple times a week that period in my life. I had a brand new baby at home. It was very taxing. And then because I felt like we needed someone who really understood, I thought the key to success was you hire someone who knows how to sell things and they magically figure all this shit out. A lot of hand waving. Yeah, (laughs) That did not work. I think it's very helpful to have a product oriented founder in that early discovery phase and iterating, entering, iterating. So yeah, that did not go well. The person I brought in a CEO, who was a sales oriented CEO, like we started battling,
0: you know, it was like, it's just a total mess. It's interesting. This is the first time you've kind of been the CEO and you said you've been a chief product officer now. So you're solely in the CEO seat now. Yeah,
1: that one, I think I was afraid to be the CEO of that company. Yeah, I thought that's that I needed different a role. I, And because I can code, I was like, we need more coders. So like put Todd in, and I'm capable. And uh, I fell into that trap where just because I could do something that it was the right role for me. And I brought in someone who knew something about sales and like, he was a good friend but it was just set up for failure day one. And like, it actually really hurt our friendship, which sucked it. I went through um, that one too. <laughs> um, and he ended up departing, leaving me with like six months of cash. Mm. And then I was a CEO. That was the first time. And That's <laughs> uh, way luck. You're hand it to get handed to you. are <laughs> <of> money. we we'll a <laughs> CEO. But we'll say, look, we got a soft landing and I sold it to this company where I became head of product, which was the company before Pendo, that company basically we had the opportunity to take the company public. I was pretty involved in that process. So I got great experience. We actually did okay in terms of delivering some capital back to, to investors. Shockingly, I have no idea how the hell that was possible, but it very luckily was. And in doing so, I learned a lot about leadership and transparency and like, look, I went to the whole company. I was like, look, we got six months of cash left. This is my plan. Like, please stay because if you leave, I have nothing to sell. <laughs> so, uh, and they all did. And, and some of that team became the founding engineering team for Pendo, so it all sort of worked out, I suppose. But boy,
0: not a fun time in my life. Yeah. And, Still got better hair than me, so it must have been not that bad. I think it's <laughs> my friend. But uh,
1: <laughs> but uh, just luck. But yeah, that, that was it. In later years, I read Steve Blank's Four Steps to the Epiphany, which, if folks, you haven't read that. It's like, to me, it's like the, the foundational book on product market fit. And like, I'm reading that book and almost screaming inside as I read, like, basically the, the prologue in the first chapter, because I'm like, holy shit, I did all this stuff. It was so painful. I can't believe I did this. I feel like I'm such an idiot. But I think that realization and that experience meant that I was so disciplined on Pendo, so careful To the point like my board's begging me to hire sales reps and i just kept refusing until like i felt like we really nailed fit which we did thankfully and i think you know it did make the rest of what we've done a little little easier not to say anything's easy here maybe a little bit easier just by being super disciplined up front
0: that is great advice and a great story and thank you for sharing it i love the humility there one last final question for you today if you could go back and give your 25-year-old self any advice, what would you tell them?
1: Enjoy it. I think the thing that me as 25, like I was like, again, working around the clock, I was pushing myself. And like my first company, which we didn't really talk as much about, we grew to 70 people and we almost got a huge outcome and didn't. That's a whole nother like, ocean mm-hmm. moment, which... Isn't like obviously a less interesting one. So we almost had a big outcome to the point where I didn't work again at 23 or yeah. 24 years old. Yeah. And I thought that it was just so easy to get there at 23. And yeah. I didn't realize it would take me till, you know, probably you now ish in my 40s yeah, to kind yeah, of get yeah. back to some of those similar states and with some sort of successes in the middles, but more like, yeah, I think I appreciate a whole hell
0: of a lot more than I did then. And one of the great things about getting older. <laughs> so yeah, I think, I think that's great advice though. I appreciate it. Well, I think that's a really positive a high note to end today's episode on. But before anyone kind of you know clicks away or jumps off, I'd love to make sure that they can find you if they want to you know get to know you better. What's the best platform for people to find you or learn more about you these days?
1: Yeah feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm you know Todd Olson with an O. Pendo is also on LinkedIn, so feel free to check us out. And I'm happy to connect. And we're in North Carolina. So if you happen to be in North Carolina, let stop by or, or let us know.
0: Yeah, awesome. They're very generous of you, Todd. Thank you so much. And for all of you listening or watching today. Thank you again for watching our ship. It means the world to us that you tune in every week. The show has been growing and week after week after week, we've crossed another milestone in subscribers and viewers this week, which has been very exciting. something that put me in a great mood and that's all because of you guys. And we will continue to make this show commercial free for as long as I have anything to do with it. And the best way you can support us is just subscribe, like, comment, share it on your social feeds. And I'm going to do everything I can to keep bringing incredible guests like Todd Olson to you every single week. So thank you, thank you, thank you for being subscribers. Uh, Todd, thank you for tuning in and and joining us today. And again, if anyone wants to find out more about us, go to OShipShow.com and you can see all the great links to subscribe. Maybe you've been a YouTube viewer in the past. Great time to subscribe to our audio podcast. With that, thank you, everyone. We'll see you next week on OShip. Thanks again, Todd. Thanks, Randy.